Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. These are among the darkest hours for Europe since the end of World War II. A major nuclear power has attacked a neighbour country and is threatening reprisals of any other states that may come to its rescue. Welcome to the EU Confidential Podcast. I'm Andrew Gray, Politics Editor at Political Europe in Brussels. Thank you for joining us on the kind of day many of us had imagined, or at least hoped, we wouldn't see in the 21st century. You just heard the EU's Foreign Policy Chief, Josep Borrell, reacting to the news that early on Thursday morning, Vladimir Putin's Russia launched a massive military attack on Ukraine. This is not only the greatest violation of international law, it's a violation of the basic principles of human coexistence. It's costing many lives with unknown consequences ahead of us. I want to say, first of all, that our thoughts are with everyone in Ukraine. I know that may not offer much comfort right now, but I do hope it offers some Our goal over the next 30 minutes or so is to bring you up to date with the latest news, to give you the reaction from Europe and its allies, and as best we can to analyse and try to make some sense of all of this, as much as you can make any sense of something so senseless. Earlier on Thursday, we held a live edition of the podcast on Twitter Spaces. Joining us was Politico's David Herzenhorn, who's currently in Ukraine, so please Bear with us when it comes to the quality of his audio, as he was literally on the move in what has suddenly and sadly become a war zone. And we were also joined by Matt Karnichnik, our Chief Europe Correspondent in Berlin, and by Lily Beyer, our reporter in Brussels. Let's get straight to the highlights of that conversation now. I'm going to start with you, Matt, as our Chief uh, Europe Correspondent. Just give us your, your overall thoughts on the day. It's, it's such an extraordinary day, even though uh, the warnings had been there for weeks or months or, you know, depending on how you look at it, even years. Um, how do you view this day? Well, I mean, it's obviously the uh, worst fears being realized here. And I think we'll know over the next days and weeks just how extensive this invasion is going to be and and you know, what it will mean for Europe's security architecture going forward. I think at the very least, we can expect that NATO will be moving a lot of troops onto the eastern flank. And all of these agreements that the West has had in the past with Russia about not permanently stationing troops in the Baltics and Poland and other former Warsaw Pact countries are going to go out the window, I would expect. 
Right. I mean, as you say, um, you know, this is still unfolding very rapidly. And um, so the long term repercussions in some senses are not clear, although, you know, one thing is obviously very clear. We're not going to go back to anything like business as usual for a very long time to come. You wrote a very uh, strong piece, which is up on our website, politico.eu, about uh, Germany's approach to Russia over the years and how, to a large extent, that also drove the larger European approach to Russia. Your view, I think, very strongly was that obviously uh, recent events have proved that to be a very misguided approach. Do you see much reevaluation uh, going on in Germany already? Well, not so far. I mean, it's obviously early days, but I think what's happened today is a complete repudiation of German foreign policy towards Russia over, you know, more more than a decade, because there have been many of people outside of Germany who have been warning the Germans, saying, you don't understand how dangerous Putin is. You don't understand what he's really up to. And the Germans basically chose a different path from confrontation, which was to coddle him, to ignore the many transgressions uh, he committed, whether it was in shutting down the Estonian internet, which was sort of the first salvo in a long line of incidents since 2007. And that was followed a year later, obviously, by the attacks on Georgia, and then, of course, uh, Crimea and the war in eastern Ukraine. But beyond that, even if you look at what Russia has done in places like Syria and Libya and so forth. I think there's a pattern here of Europe in general and Germany in particular just downplaying all of these things and thinking that he was somebody that they could seriously negotiate with. And if you look back at the past week or so, or even, you know, the past two weeks, let's say, of all of the diplomatic effort Germany has put into trying to come up with some sort of last minute deal with uh, Putin on the basis of the Minsk agreements, you can see in retrospect that he was just using them to play for time, waiting until he could get all of his troops into position and then attacking. So I don't think uh, that European foreign policy uh, looks very strong after after this. And I suspect that all of this talk that we've heard recently about strategic autonomy and so forth is going to go completely out the window because the Eastern Europeans are going to insist that NATO start stationing troops on the Eastern flank and everyone is going to turn to the United States for help again. Yeah. How do you see uh, the transatlantic relationship in light of this crisis? It does seem like the Biden administration has made uh, quite an effort to be in lockstep with European allies. Is this, if you like, a revival of that relationship and and obviously a a strengthening of of NATO? Is that what we're going to see in the the weeks, months and years to come? I think we'll definitely see a further strengthening of NATO. Um, I don't know that uh, that Biden has been in in lockstep with the Europeans or or that the Europeans have been in in more or less in lockstep with, with him on this, because ultimately the Europeans are going to be relying on the U.S. uh, security guarantees. And Germany is going to come under enormous pressure again to spend more on its military and so forth. But, you know, these are long term projects. And and that's why I think in the immediate future, there's going to be an effort to shift troops, which means mostly American troops onto the eastern 
eastern flank. And, and this is also going to force the United States, I think, to to rethink its entire kind of strategic posture towards Europe and towards China. The U.S. was hoping that it could rely on Europe to effectively deal with Russia. It's clear now that that is not going to happen. And the role that China plays here with Russia is, you know, part of this larger story that is going to unfold in the near future. Absolutely. Yeah, well, I'm delighted to say that uh, we've been joined by David Herzenhorn, who's in Ukraine. David, I don't know how specific you want to be about your location, but just give us a sense of, of the mood there, of the atmosphere, of what you're seeing and hearing in Ukraine. Well, I'm in the, the south of Ukraine, I'll say, and um, in a city that is much quieter than usual, which is a good thing at the moment. Uh, there was a an attack on a tank unit uh, located uh, not too far away this morning. Uh, folks, you know, some going about their lives, but there is now martial law officially declared. There was a state of emergency declared yesterday. I mean, people are just stunned. I mean, obviously, uh, this was not entirely unexpected, but for many people, they say, you know, they feel like it's a it's a movie or, you know, just, just unbelievable that, that this is really going on. Of course, it's a country that's been living with war, although much further away uh, since 2014 in Donbass. Uh, there is also a sense that Ukraine is very much on its own, recognizing that while there are sanctions and there are, you know, strong statements uh, coming from the West, nobody is coming to fight alongside of them. There is also disinformation getting out there, and uh, this is a, something that folks have been warning about from Washington and, uh, and European capitals. I was just asked on the street by some young people if it's true that President Zelensky is already flying away, is already running. There have been reports that uh, there are planes waiting for him at uh, Pill Airport. That doesn't seem to be true as far as anyone has told me. Uh, that's fake news. But there is this uh, you know, just real tension and a question of how close war will come to every one of these people. There, there's a Navy base where we spent time yesterday. We published a story earlier that came under immediate fire, a place that uh, Vladimir Putin had singled out specifically as part of his complaints that NATO was using Ukraine, turning Ukraine into a staging ground for its operations. It's not far from that military base. There's a training ground that was uh, renovated, and all the reports described how this was now up to NATO standards, even though, of course, everyone knew Ukraine would not join NATO anytime soon. And now, precisely because of this, Putin has unleashed war in Europe. Obviously, uh, everybody's shocked. Mm. Uh, David, you're also a former Mo Moscow correspondent. You've covered that conflict in Donbass. But how do you explain Vladimir Putin, you know, taking things to this whole new level? We, we saw that extraordinary speech at the beginning of the week. The essence of the aggressive nationalistic character of the regime that seized power in Kiev hasn't changed. I consider it necessary to immediately recognize the independence and sovereignty of the Donetsk and Lugansk People's Republics. Really ominous speech filled with grievance and bitterness and, you know, just outright falsehoods. And, you know, it seemed a very, very dark speech. And now we've seen something unleashed on, on a different scale to what he's done previously, certainly in Europe. How do you account for that? I mean, it's the big question, right? But you're better qualified than most of us to have a shot at answering it. It's um, really hard to explain, except that these are 
grievances that Putin has been airing for quite a long time. When you look back at the complaints, for example, about this Navy base, it's five years going that various folks in Moscow have been, you know, people close to Putin. Uh, Zhirinovsky, the far-right leader, have been complaining about, you know, NATO's activity in the Black Sea. I mean, this is a guy who, you know, has long complained about promises that he believes NATO is broken, about commitments that were made that were never kept, about the illegal activities as he views them in either the former Yugoslavia or Libya. But I'm talking to and in touch with, of course, friends and colleagues in Moscow who are just shocked. I mean, it's hard to even imagine, you know, for some of them, it would be like the people I cover in the EU every day suddenly, you know, turning into space aliens or something. They just didn't expect this. They thought that he was bluffing. They thought, I mean, we've seen political analysts saying this as well in Russia, that they thought that this was a big pressure uh, maneuver by Putin, but that he was not going to unleash war. But in fact, the same uh, nationalist leader, Zhirinovsky, who is part of the loyal opposition, he's run for president in the past, you know, at Putin's invitation, back in December, he described nearly to the day when this war would begin. Uh, I think he said January, uh, uh, February 22nd at 4 a.m. So it was February 24th at 4 a.m. But he wasn't off. I mean, we know the videos have been planned. A lot of this has been staged. Uh, so I think folks are, are really shell-shocked. Uh, some of them are absolutely horrified that this is going on. They know that there are a lot of places like the city I'm in right now that were peaceful up until this morning. Now we're seeing a helicopter right overhead now. But suddenly, this is you know a country fully at war, being invaded from all sides. Forces are closing in on Kiev. Uh, we're hearing reports of cities like Mariupol on the Black Sea that have already fallen. Others like Sumy to the northeast that are engulfed in very, very heavy fighting. Everybody knows that the Ukrainian military is no match for the overwhelming force of the Russian Federation. And then it raises a question about uh, you know Joe Biden and other Western leaders who he said uh, as recently as Tuesday he has no intention of fighting Russia. He says, well, no intention of fighting Russia on Ukrainian soil. But where does this stop when somebody is willing to go this far? Where does it stop and what kind of a signal does it send when the West is willing to put up statements but is not willing to put boots on the ground? Right. And so the spotlight is now very much on the West and on Western reaction to this. We've heard some very strong uh, rhetoric today from EU leaders, from President Emmanuel Macron, from Joe Biden and from Boris Johnson, among others, Olaf Scholz as well. But what are they actually going to do in concrete terms? Lily, I'm going to bring you in now. Uh, Give us a sense of what they're saying they're going to do, what we might expect in the coming hours and days. There's a meeting of uh, the European Council, that's the EU's national leaders this evening here in Brussels. What are they saying they're going to do uh, to respond to this aggression from Russia? So uh, the leaders meeting this evening are expected to agree in principle um, to impose further restrictive measures. Um, They're saying that these will be massive and will have severe consequences. Earlier in the day, we heard from Commission President Ursula von der Leyen. Later today, we will present a package of massive and targeted sanctions to European leaders for approval. She um, outlined a couple of measures that will be on the table. First, she talked about financial sanctions, which, in her words, will harshly limit access to capital markets for Russia and will have um, quite a big impact on the country's economy. She talked about how these sanctions will suppress economic growth in Russia. And second, she also talked about limits to Russia's access to crucial technology. This is expected to impact Russian industry. With this package, we will target strategic sectors of the Russian economy by blocking their access 
to technologies and markets that are key for Russia. So there are all of these uh, wide-ranging measures on the table and leaders are expected to reach a political agreement. This will be followed then, of course, by the technical details about what is on the table. Um, I do think it's really interesting. David talked about how people are, are shell-shocked, really surprised. I remember talking to diplomats about this just a few days ago, and even though people in Brussels did seem quite concerned about the situation and the Russian threat as late as um, you know early this week, I don't think anyone was quite expecting anything like this. And when I'm talking to diplomats today, you know, even though they are saying that you know they they are prepared, I did get the sense that they weren't personally quite expecting anything like this. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the, it's one of the strange things where the facts have been on the ground for some time, but this scenario just seems to belong to another era that it's very hard to, to get your head around it. And even though they've obviously made preparations and plans for a scenario like this, the warnings have been there uh, at least for weeks, it still seems like they're trying to come to terms with it. And there are still details to be agreed. We know that, for example, nations such as the Baltic states have called for Russia to be removed from SWIFT, the international payment system, other countries, bigger economies, and not willing to go along with that. But we should also turn the spotlight, I think, again on Ukraine. I know that Lily, you and other colleagues have um, seen some documents in terms of what the Ukrainian government is looking for from the EU, from NATO, from others at this moment. You know, what are their most urgent requests? And if you can, give us a sense of how likely they are to be met. So the Ukrainian authorities are circulating very, very long lists of things that they deem necessary in this situation. This ranges from kind of medical equipment, body armor, to ammunition and, and weapons. Um, it's a bit unclear at the moment what they would get out of this list. And of course, I think everyone is aware that there are divisions within the European Union about what to provide to Ukraine and that a lot of countries are providing assistance bilaterally. So, for example, the Baltic states, Poland, uh, Canada, you know, they're, they're providing assistance to Ukraine. Others are more hesitant. We heard, for example, from Prime Minister Viktor Orban of Hungary. He posted a video today saying, you know, condemning Russia's actions, but also saying that Hungary wants to stay out of the military conflict and will not provide military assistance. So there are some divisions there. I asked one senior diplomat earlier in the day, you know, what they think about these lists and got an answer that, you know, they, they believe that Ukraine will continue to get support. But again, the question is, you know, how much, what kind of support and from who? So I think that that remains to be seen. And in many ways, it's early days. Right. And, and the situation is moving so quickly. It does feel like if they don't get uh, some of the things they're looking for pretty soon, there is obviously the possibility that it could be too late. And then we're moving into a different scenario, which we don't know exactly. You know, we don't know Vladimir Putin's uh, ultimate aim here, whether he aims to occupy the entire country or divide it. Or, um, you know, all of this, you know, is still to be determined. David, do you think there is anything that anyone can do to influence Vladimir Vladimir Putin at this stage? It doesn't seem that there is. Uh, there are reports, you know, that he served yet another ultimatum to Zelensky at the recognition of Crimea, the recognition of Dunbar, 
the province, the uh, regions, the oblasts of uh, uh, Lugansk and Donetsk in their entirety. Obviously, uh, Zelensky can't give in to that, and so there is a sense that there really is nothing that can be done. Also, when you when again you listen to that speech that you described, Andrew, where he describes and talks about Ukraine as if it's just not a legitimate state. It's not a real country to him. It's completely corrupted. It's uh, falling apart. I mean, he clearly hasn't been in Ukraine in uh, the last eight years and, and longer because we've seen it make you know steady progress toward democracy. You can't even claim that Zelensky was a president of the Maidan revolution. Five years uh, after that, he defeated Poroshenko, who was a leader on Maidan with 73% of the vote. So people I've been talking to on the street say, you know, he is a, their legitimate president. And yet Putin seems intent on toppling this government. Now, one theory that I'm hearing, and there are quite a lot of them, is that Putin will try to reinstall Viktor Yanukovych, the former president who fled to Russia and then with Yanukovych sort of restored as the legal leader of Ukraine, call new elections and try and move the country forward from there. It's way too premature to talk about that. The Ukrainians are fighting very hard from everything we're hearing. But it does not seem that there is any uh, negotiating with Putin, nor was there any way to negotiate with him over these last eight years when it came to the Minsk Accords. He was just never willing to even acknowledge that Russia was a party to this conflict. The former Russian ambassador to NATO, uh, Grushko, lying to my face when I asked him, how can you have an honest conversation when you don't admit that, you know, the Russian military is active in Donbass, that you're controlling these separatist uh, regimes? And he just says, Russia has never been in Donbass, is not in Ukraine. NATO is all over Ukraine. I mean, it, it's a ridiculous uh, proposition to engage in conversations like that. Right. And that seems to be also one of the, the problems with any kind of diplomatic engagement, because we have seen also Vladimir Putin and others just lie blatantly to interlocutors like Emmanuel Macron to uh, Olaf Scholz. Perhaps we shouldn't be in the least uh, surprised, but it does make any kind of diplomatic engagement very difficult if you can't trust the other side when it comes to even basic details and basic assurances. Uh, Matt, what do you think? I mean, what is the most the Europeans can do now, or is it just all going to be too little too late? I think it is too little too late, unfortunately. And I think that anybody who is saying now, whether in Brussels or in Washington, that they're surprised by this as being somewhat disingenuous because the Biden administration has been warning almost daily that uh, this was about to happen. Everybody knew it was about to happen and that it could happen. I mean, we ran a cover story uh, a month ago laying out this very scenario that we're facing right now. So there, there were plenty of people sounding the alarm bells. And unfortunately, we in the West are leaving Ukraine more or less in the lurch. And this is a country, the only country that ever agreed to give up its nuclear weapons, you know, under the promise that its territorial integrity would be respected. And uh, 20 some years later, you know, here we are in this situation or 30 years later. So it, it really is a very dispiriting uh set of events. I mean, some people in Germany now and elsewhere in Europe are calling it a tragedy. I don't think it is a tragedy because a tragedy suggests that there's some sort of fate involved here. And and this didn't have to happen. You know, I mean, this happened because we're dealing with a madman in Moscow uh, who is, is willing to do whatever it takes to restore what he sees as Russia's historic grandness. And, um, you know, I mean, the question is, will he stop there? And let's hope he does. But people should make no mistake that we are facing a completely different world after this. Right. I mean, I do think that is the thing. There has there's been a kind of set of assumptions 
And I think that all of those need to go out of the window now, right? And obviously, one of them would be that he would draw the line at a NATO member because he knows that there's the mutual defence pact. But it just feels at the moment like that we can't assume any of that anymore, right? Because this is not something, the scale of this uh, of this invasion is not something that people would have imagined even a fairly short time ago, or at least some people would have. But the mainstream assumption was that something like this couldn't happen. And it has. David, I'm just going to throw back to you for some final thoughts because you're the guy on the ground. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, Andrew, you know, and let's not forget that Belarus, which was, you know, partnering with the EU up until Lukashenko's fraudulent election, is now complicit in this entire situation. Russia launching much of its invasion, uh, certainly its push toward Kiev, the capital, from the north. I think for sure uh, the security architecture has now been rewritten in Europe. If that was Putin's goal, that's been done. Whether it's going to be rewritten the way he wants, I highly doubt it. At the same time, it, it is astonishing that you know that Putin lies again and again and again, and everybody knows that. And yet when he threatens certain things, which seem to be oblique threats of even a, a nuclear strike if anybody interferes with what he's doing, that he is ready to follow through on that. I'm not sure that's the case. I'm not sure, and we'll never know the answer to the, to the counterfactual. But if there had been a multinational force of Americans, Canadians, Estonians, Poles, you know, Turks across the board standing there on the line of contact in Dunbass saying, go ahead, shoot at all of us. Are you really out of your mind? I'm not sure that he would have undertaken this uh, wild adventure, but the message was loud and clear, just as Matt said, that Ukraine would be left on its own, effectively acknowledging that this is Vladimir Putin's sphere of influence. And if you have spent any time in Kiev or the rest of Ukraine in these last years, it's abundantly obvious. I mean, I was on Maidan from the start until the finish. These were people who were infuriated that the president at the time had broken a promise to sign political and economic agreements with the EU. They were then infuriated even more when he directed the uh, riot police to crack down and brutalize protesters who were peaceful. So if we think about, you know, Putin calling Maidan a coup, that started with peaceful protesters who camped out on the streets of their capital in the freezing cold for months. This is an attempt to topple a government that's beginning with missile strikes and tanks rolling across the border and attack helicopters. I mean, who's the aggressor here? There's no real question about that. No, there isn't. And as you say also, uh, David, I think the very sobering thought for the European Union is that, um, as you say, what Vladimir Putin saw as a threat um, or claimed to see as a threat was uh, Ukraine looking to take a direction and move closer to the European Union. And now the European Union can do very little, it seems, uh, to help a country which, you know, in some ways very courageously tried to move uh, in the direction of the European Union. I think we're going to wrap things up there. Uh, David, I want to thank you in particular and obviously tell you to stay safe. Um, and we look forward to seeing more of your reporting and in due time, obviously seeing you back here safely again. Matt, thanks to you too and to Lily. And as I was saying at the beginning of uh, our broadcast, I want to have a particular thought for everyone in Ukraine, particularly anyone who might be listening from there. Now, as I say, I know that it's very scant comfort, but we certainly have you in our thoughts uh, these days. And we'll see what European leaders are uh, willing to do in support of Ukraine. Those were some highlights from our live podcast recording earlier on Thursday. 
Coming up after this short break, we'll hear from Politico's own Zoya Sheftalovich, who's originally from Ukraine, but now based in Australia. As chance would have it, Zoya was our editor on duty when Russia's attack began overnight our time. Stay tuned for the insights and personal stories she has to share right after this. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. A message from Lloyd's Banking Group. Lloyd's Banking Group has championed social housing for decades. It provides finance expertise and guidance to more than 340 housing associations across the UK. These range from small local associations of several hundred homes to much larger regional associations responsible for tens of thousands of properties. Each has an important role to play in their community to help people find a safe place to call home. Improving access to quality and affordable homes is central to Lloyds Banking Group's commitment to helping Britain prosper. That's why Lloyds Banking Group is calling for one million more homes to be made available for social rent over the next decade. We're back now with Politico Zoya Sheftalovic, our Brussels Playbook editor, who's originally from Ukraine. Zoya, before we dive into the details of what you're hearing from friends and family in the region, Give our listeners a quick sense of your relationship to Ukraine and to Russia. So I was born in Ukraine in a town called Chernovtsi, which is now known as Chernovitz. My family and I were from that region and around that region. Um, certainly that was where I grew up. I then moved to Australia in the classic 1992 brain drain that resulted after the fall of the Soviet Union. Um, in terms of then my ongoing links, we still have lots of family friends who are in Ukraine in all sorts, all over Ukraine. I also have family and friends in Russia. So my connection to the region is pretty significant and I have ongoing ties there. So given your family ties there, I imagine you still have lots of contact with people who are there at the moment. What sort of communication have you been getting? You know, how have they been doing as this invasion has unfolded? I've been getting lots of text messages from different people all around Ukraine. So one friend of a friend who is in Uman, which is a town that's south of Kiev, of the capital, uh, reported that there had been a, a rocket that had been dropped onto a shop in the town and a man who had been riding a bicycle past that spot had been killed in the um, in that rocket attack. Uh, others, we've got people in Kiev who've been reporting hearing rocket fire and seeing planes flying over, um, which is quite, quite shocking, really. I've got friends and family in Chernovitz, and they've been saying that while there's no, there hasn't been any artillery fire or anything like that, it's a town that's quite far south. It's on the Romanian border near the Carpathian Mountains. 
So no sign of fire there, but the general mood is of quite significant alarm. Um, Lots of people have been crowding into shops, into pharmacies, buying things up. Um, One family friend was saying that in the pharmacies, people are actually doing sort of quasi auctions of things. So um, there are goods are just emptying off the shelves and people are trying to sort of offer much higher than the regular price of items to be able to stock up on them. And she was also saying that the ATMs are just, the lines are down the block. You can't, you can't get to an ATM, you can't get to a bank. People are just emptying them of money while they can. And that's really very far from um, where most of the action is right now. So I think it is a general state of alarm in the country, obviously, and even in the parts of it that aren't being shelled. Yeah, that sounds very dramatic. And we certainly hope your family and friends are are doing okay. Before we let you go, I want to turn quickly to get your thoughts on Vladimir Putin's speech, basically declaring war on Ukraine, which happened just before 6am Moscow time. So overnight in, in Central Europe, you were our editor on deck at the moment. You're a native Russian speaker. You obviously have this very close connection to Ukraine. Tell us a bit about just how you felt when you realised what was really happening here? Uh, It was actually, I've got to tell you, it was one of the strangest, most surreal experiences I've ever experienced. I think it's a little bit maybe like what the people, the journalists who were reporting on 9-11 felt in some ways because it's this sense of history unfolding before you and not knowing, like, is this real? Um, So I was just, I was on deck, I was editing Brussels Playbook, which is what I do as my day job. And I was keeping an eye on what was happening in Ukraine. And the first sign of something serious happening was there was this notice that came out basically saying that um, all civilian flights around Ukraine had been grounded. And that was at around about 4 a.m. Ukraine time. And that was a pretty alarming notice. That's uh, something you don't get all the time. And so at that point, the speculation on Twitter was, oh, something imminent is coming. And so I was just, I was following things on Twitter and all of a sudden I saw that Putin was giving this um, address, this urgent address. And in fact, at first, when I saw the address, I thought that it was actually his speech that he gave on Monday because he was wearing an identical outfit to the one that he wore on Monday. And so I actually wasn't 100% sure that this was new. I thought, oh, maybe it was on Resia 24, which is um, one of the Russian channels. And I thought, oh, maybe they're replaying this speech in the early hours of of this morning just to kind of get some Russian spirit up. Um, So I didn't, at first, it it didn't click to me that this was a a new speech. And then I heard Putin say that he was authorizing a military operation and I thought, oh, okay, that is definitely new. So it just sort of hit me at that time that those words were a declaration of war effectively against Ukraine and that very shortly after that, no doubt that the shelling was going to begin. So at that point I raised the cavalry in Brussels and um, we all just sort of got to work, but it was quite surreal. I was listening to the speech. I was freehand just translating it into English as he was speaking in Russian. I'm Russian is my native language. And so, yeah, so I was just sort of writing it and it was incredible because it felt sort of almost like an out-of-body experience writing it as I'm hearing him say these things and then at the same time quickly looking for reactions. And the other thing to note is that this speech came just 
at exactly the same time as the UN Security Council was debating an urgent motion on Ukraine, which I was also following. So it was this really surreal um, kind of contrast where you had in the UN Security Council people sort of condemning Russia in, in, in strict words and and that sort of thing. And then at the exact same moment, oh, and by the way, the UN Security Council is chaired by Russia. 8974 So the chair of the UN Security Council is speaking in Russian and is chairing the meeting and is in Russian calling upon different people in the UN Security Council to give their um, their words to speak. Письмо постоянного представителя Украины при Организации Объединенных Наций. And at that very same time, you've got Vladimir Putin declaring war on Ukraine. We urge you to lay down arms immediately and go home. I will explain. All servicemen of the Ukrainian army who comply with this requirement can freely leave the area of military actions and return to their families. Whoever would try to stop us and further create threats to our country, to our people, should know that Russia's response will be immediate and lead you to such consequences that you have never faced in your history. We are ready for any outcome. It was this split screen that was quite unbelievable for me. And um, and for a moment I just thought, like, is this, is this actually happening? Because it felt so surreal, those two things. And the other element of this is also that prior, just probably about an hour prior to that or a couple of hours prior to that, Vladimir Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, had delivered this really impassioned plea for peace, a, a final plea, as it turned out, to speaking directly to the Russian people. Who can stop the war? People. These people are among you, I am sure. We should stop before it's too late. If the Russian leadership doesn't want to sit down at the negotiating table, they should sit at the table with you. Do Russians want war? I'd love to answer this question, but the answer depends only on you. And of course, the inevitability of it was that just a few hours later, in what was likely a speech that was in fact probably recorded on Monday, as we now know from the metadata, um, so truly an inevitability, um, Putin had declared war on Ukraine. Okay, Zoya, well, we'll leave it there for now. Thanks very much for your time. Thanks, Andrew. And that's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential. Be sure to follow the podcast so you never miss an episode. You can always send us feedback or ideas. The email address is podcast at politico.eu. I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks this week to Anna Fota and Emma Christick for their help in making our live Twitter recording happen. And thanks also to podcast intern Noah Zan, to our executive producer Christina Gonzalez, and thanks to you for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. 
Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.